Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code HANGUP at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 4th, 2016. On today's show, Spencer Hall will join us to talk about the college football playoffs, not-so-smashing New Year's Eve debut, and the upcoming title game matchup between Alabama and Clemson. We'll also discuss Chip Kelly's firing as the coach personnel guru, and guy who everyone seemed to hate with the Philadelphia Eagles. And we'll assess the claim that Peyton Manning used HGH, or that Peyton Manning's wife was mailed HGH for Peyton Manning to use, or that Peyton Manning's wife was mailed HGH for Peyton Manning's wife to use, or maybe the UPS guy just had the wrong address and the Patriots are somehow to blame. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Happy 2016, Stefan. Likewise, Josh. Still writing 2015 on all my podcast oh, your scripts. Checks. On, on my podcast scripts. Yeah. Uh, with us from New York is Mike Pesca. How are you, Mike? I'm well. My theory is that Ashley Manning actually replaced Brock Osweiler in the second half to a rousing <laughs> ovation. That's how good the HGH is. Just made her grow into Peyton. <laughs> you are the host of a uh, just... An amazing selection of uh, gut flora, but also of Slate's daily podcast, uh-huh. Digest, with Mike I, I, I do want to say, though, Josh, that I am most proud of my gut biome, but second most proud of the gist. Yes. <laughs> Before we get on with the rest of the show, a special announcement. Mom and Dad are fighting. Slate's parenting podcast is having a live show later this month. It's going to be in Brooklyn at the Bell House on Tuesday, January 26th. They'll be having a special guest, poet, and first lady of New York, Shirlane McRae. To get tickets, head over to slate.com slash live.
Did anybody catch any whimsy this weekend? The last week of the NFL season is generally rife with whimsy. Mike Lewis, S. Mike Lewis on Twitter nominated Mason Crosby's gray hair as, as whimsy. Does gray hair on a football player count as whimsy? Well, the fact that he sprouted it during the Vikings' return, almost for a touchdown, but then forcing the fumble. That was an interesting game with almost nothing real on the line. <laughs> did you see the last two minutes of that game? Did you see I the did. play right before the two-minute warning? Do you remember what happened? No. It was a handoff to Adrian Peterson, and he just goes, boop, fumbles the ball into the line. Could have changed everything, which really— They wanted know, to lose. In the whole scope of they things, They should have lost. Nothing. They needed to lose. Then why recover that? They failed in losing. I know it was weird. Another kicker whimsy, Dan Carpenter of the Bills, spiked his helmet, mm-hmm. came back up and hit him in the face. I feel like the bar needs to be higher for kickers. Did you see Richard Sherman get a penalty when somebody grabbed his dreadlocks and the referee thought it was his face mask? <laughs> oh, wow. You're allowed to gra- grab the dreadlocks, you know. You're allowed to grab Randall right. Hodd's hood. Randall Cobb's hood or Randall Hodd's cub. Don't drag. <laughs> don't grab the guy's cub. That's disgusting. Is that racist somehow? The cub? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We all like have co- a cub. <laughs> confusing dreadlocks with a face mask. I don't know. The refs have plenty of problems already. Let's not throw racism. <laughs> strike too. strike that true. from the record. If you go to Jamaica, they're always wearing face masks down there. <laughs> On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the etiquette for watching sports at a party. So you all know what to do in 360 days when New Year's Eve comes around again. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. On New Year's Eve, I watched parts of the two college football playoff semifinals while eating ribs. And I must say the ribs were delicious. I can't go into as much detail about what happened in the football games. Uh, Clemson's win over Oklahoma and Alabama shut out over Michigan State. But again, the ribs were delicious, as was the mac and cheese. In sports media world, at least, there was a lot less talk about Deshaun Watson and Jacob Coker and the games themselves than about the TV ratings, which were down about 40% from year one of the playoff when the semis were played on January 1st rather than December 31st. And this was, despite a fantastic marketing campaign from ESPN and the entire Disney family, which enlisted characters on General Hospital to talk about how much they were looking forward to the college football playoff. Let's hear a little bit of that. This is the first time they're doing the playoff on New Year's Eve. I mean, actually, it's only the second time they've had a college football playoff, period. But I think it's a good thing. I'd rather watch football than freeze my butt off at some street party or pay an arm and a leg to get into a club. Well, I was planning on checking out the floating rib because they're playing the uh, college football playoff. Hey, Jason, you got anything going on tonight? Dante and I are going to go to the floating rib and watch the college football playoff. You want to come along? You uh, watch the playoff? Yeah. Sounded like more fun than sitting on Carly's couch. Yeah. No problem. <clears throat> Enjoy watching football on New Year's. Okay, well, you're in luck because ESPN's doing it again next year. <laughs> you're in luck. ESPN's doing it again next year. 
Uh, and I really want even more ribs now after listening to that clip. I want to go to the floating rib. <laughs> rib, rib, rib. Joining us now is Spencer Hall, the editorial director of SB Nation and the editor of the college football site. Uh, Every day should be Saturday. And the proprietor of the floating rib. <laughs> I was going to say he played Sonny Corinthos on General Hospital for the last 14 years. Uh, welcome, Spencer. I'm really more of an all my children man, if we're going to be honest about it. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the honesty. Let's be honest as well about what's going on with uh, these college football playoff games. So the first reason why these games run New Year's Eve is that the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl are contractually slotted into New Year's Day until 2026. The second reason, according to what I've been reading, is that Bill Hancock and the various other college football poobahs are evil. They're arrogant. They enjoy depriving us simple God-fearing fans of the appropriate scheduling that we deserve. Um, what do you think is going on here? And will these ratings change when these games are played going forward? I don't think they'll change much because I just think that the teams involved, like, let's be real honest here, that this would have worked if there had been really compelling matchups. Not to the extent that I think that it worked when it was New Year's Day. It just won't. Because people do go out. Life does actually dictate a little bit of what the sports fan does. It happens, okay? Not everyone is me. I'm going to be there. It doesn't matter, all right? You put them on in hell at 3 in the morning, I will be there in hell at 3 in the morning. It's an expensive ticket to Shreveport, Louisiana, but I will pay it. The ribs are delicious in hell. the The ribs are delicious in hell, fire roasted. But the thing is, that other people do have things. Other people will actually yield to the demands of their family members and other people will go out on New Year's. So I think when people say that, you know, yeah, they were on New Year's and it was a complete disaster. I mean, it wasn't a complete disaster. They all got paid. They're going to go back to their advertiser because sports is the one thing that you still actually have to watch live and pay for in one respect or another. But at the same time, it wasn't like the, you know, it wasn't like the games helped. It wasn't like they didn't get caught flat-footed by you know, one extremely uh, interesting game, I think, in Clemson, Oklahoma, and then one game which was a blowout, and neither of which were completely competitive. So uh, they're a victim of circumstance in one uh, regard, and then I think idiots in the other. Is that a that a fair estimate? No, you're so much of an apologist, Spencer, for these assholes, for these, <laughs> these for these greedy, greedy assholes. I'm like, well, what do you? you know, everybody, you everybody did get paid. Except for the players everybody who were playing in their 14th game of the season. The guys that run the Sugar Bowl got paid $750,000 for the gentleman who uh, is the head of the Sugar Bowl whatever committee. Um, so, yeah, they all got paid a lot of money. And 12.5 million fewer people watched the college football uh, playoffs, the semifinals, than watched them last year in the first year. That's a That's a lot of people that didn't watch. And... I don't think it had anything to do with the matchups. The matchups are the matchups. Casual fans want to turn in for these final games because they are the final games. They are the playoffs. You are not getting your Spencer Halls, your diehard fans only, to watch these games. These games are designed to appeal to a mass audience of sports fans who may not have a alma mater type rooting interest or Josh, you know, who likes LSU for some reason. So this is an unmitigated disaster that reflects the 
utter corruption and arrogance of the people that run college football. For these jack-offs, and Bill Hancock is a lovely man, the guy that runs the college football playoff. <laughs> uh, he, he makes, I, I, he makes he really amazing is. ribs. He's a lovely, lovely man who has been bought to be the shill for this organization for a long, long time now. And for these jerk-offs to say that they want to change the paradigm of New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve has existed for, I think, a little bit longer than college football. <laughs> And many of the traditions have existed for longer than college football. So what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah, it's just lies. I want to come back to that. We're all like, oh, man, Bill Hancock's the nicest guy. Bleep me if you want to. Fuck Bill Hancock. Fuck Bill Hancock. <laughs> fuck Bill Hancock. Okay? Because – and I think people should do this. Like we get a little too inured to the idea that PR is this industry that has to exist. It doesn't. It's fraud. The minute you hire a PR person, it's total fraud. Like Peyton Manning. I did not become suspicious that Peyton Manning might have taken HGH until he hired Ari Fleischer because his job is to lie. <laughs> That's his job. Ari can give you this really eloquent, beautiful, and slightly menacing discourse about how that's not his job. No, his job's to lie. Everyone in PR's job is to lie. And Bill Hancock is a liar for a living. It's a very nice one, but I can't really absolve him of being a liar. And when he says that this is going to be a new tradition, that's a lie he's paid to tell. And, you know, good for him. That's great. That's not my job. My job is to say, fuck Bill Hancock. He's a liar. <laughs> we should be real upfront about that. You know? And I've met Bill Hancock. I would tell him that. I'd be like, yeah, you're real nice. Fuck you. I don't have to listen to this. because." And you say that this is a scam. Yeah, it's college football. This is, this is all, this is all uh, some form of quasi-legitimated fraud, right? Like we excuse this. And this is just... This is just the latest variation in this otherwise wonderful game that we take this fantastic product, which is just uneven enough to be interesting and just good enough to be compelling, and we put it in the worst possible formatting. And that's and this is, by the way, because there's another bowl game that makes conferences money, you know. And this is this is where we point to the Big Ten and go, your obsession with the Rose Bowl is cash motivated, and at least we understand that, right? Like that's not a lie. The conferences should have come out and just said, yeah, this is the way it's going to be because we get paid. There's a couple of interesting things going on here. One is there seemed to be this dual complaint that actually should cancel each other out. The dual complaint being it's so inconvenient to watch and the games were terrible. Well, good, right? It was so inconvenient to watch. Who cares if you missed it? The games were terrible. Another one is I think the people complaining about this are the people who, well, there is a, a group of people who are taking shot in fraud and in anything that hurts the NCAA or the institution of college football. But I think there are a lot of huge college football fans trying to say, you know, these low ratings, they aren't a referendum on the quality of the game. And yeah, I certainly believe that. But I also think the year before when all the hoopla was, wow, this really does prove that America is college football obsessed. I mean, what does obsessed mean? Uh, if we have nothing better to do, we'll watch it. I agree with that. Does it have to do, does it mean that we'll take off work on the West Coast or we won't go to parties? No, it doesn't. So I think it you know, kind of contextualizes where the game of college football and maybe all of televised sports are. Yeah, and, and there's this too. Like I think that, that we wouldn't be having this discussion if the games worked out, right? Like that's always the thing that in this vein of content is this. It's not predetermined. We, we don't get a, an ability to say this is going to be good enough to where people continue to watch the whole thing, right? It would have, like, if, if, if Michigan State had somehow, like, hung with Alabama, 
then we might not be having quite the same discussion we're having now. If Clemson and Oklahoma had come down to the wire, we wouldn't be having the discussion. I think we got spoiled a little bit with last year, right? I don't want to take away from you know my previous statement that Bill Hancock is a liar and that he's paid to lie. I'd hate, I'd hate to sully the purity of that statement too. No, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna <laughs> hammer I'm just gonna hammer this home. Also, by the way, like I, look at the teams. Like when you look at the six bowls, like you'll get a lot of manipulation of the ratings. But when you look at the six bowls, you could kind of see this coming because you know Michigan State is a generously sized fan base, but not huge. Uh, Alabama, you know, obviously was going to turn up. Clemson's not the biggest fan base. It's just not. South Carolina is not a huge state. You weren't going to have them pushing a bunch of numbers. And frankly, neither is Oklahoma. Oklahoma is, is unusual in that it is a very large brand, but their actual fan base itself is not as big as you think it would be. Then the other ones, is it Stanford, Iowa? I mean, Iowa showed up and they dominated the Rose Bowl in terms of attendance, but Iowa and Stanford are not going to push a huge TV audience. They just aren't. The biggest draw in terms of national brands was the Fiesta. Uh, which I believe did pretty well in, in terms of ratings. I think that was one of the ones that was actually up in a, a non- did Notre Dame play. Ohio State, yeah. Ohio State, Notre Dame, Ohio and, State. and, and not two. a not a terrible game. You know, within two touchdowns most of the time, and plenty of score. And interesting, right? Like interesting and. And it kind of worked. So you could kind of look at the matchups ahead of time and see this coming and say, you know, nationally, this is not going to get a lot of push. I don't think competitively that anyone expected as many blowouts, you know. So two uh, points I'd like to make first. There's always this weird kind of tone to ratings announcements where we're somehow supposed to feel sad or disappointed when ratings drop. There is the schadenfreude element, but I also feel like Whenever there's one of these, like, lowest NBA finals ever, lowest World Series, it's supposed to be some sort of, like, commentary on the decline of America when, in fact, it's an indicator of the exact opposite. Like, shouldn't we be congratulating Mm -hmm. the American people for not watching these games, which were not very good, which were not super entertaining? Well, except for the people that wanted to watch the games but who were working or had plans because it's New Year's Eve. That's my second point. I feel – I totally agree. I don't – Again, with the purity. I love the purity of all the, the statements coming in here. But I want to depurify a little bit and say there's, a, there's an element of like the Wi-Fi on the airplane isn't working to this complaint because it's like, okay, college football fucked with us forever. They wouldn't match up the one, number one and number two teams mm-hmm. forever. Then they finally did that, and we weren't satisfied with that. So now that's like the four-team playoff, which is what everyone's been clamoring for forever. And so now the complaint is that the games that we want to watch aren't on exactly when we want to watch them. It's like defining down the, the complaint. No, like, see, I don't think it is. More I, I, and more think and more. I think it's the solution is so obvious that how can they continue to fuck this up? Like you finally reach an agreeable Well, they'll figure format. it out in 25 years. And then the games will be when we want them to be on. And then maybe they'll play them in outer space or something. I don't know. Isn't but, this just the Churchillian, like idea that we are Americans and we'll do the right thing, but only after trying every other wrong option. I mean, we're going to keep pushing for it. Like, we'll get an awesome playoff scenario probably in 10 to 15 years after we do stupid things like, I don't know, have the games on New Year's? (laughs) We're reaching for that new paradigm. What about the championship game matchup, Spencer? Alabama's favored by seven. Um, Ted Miller on ESPN made the argument that this is 
the SEC title game, that Clemson is the SEC-est of non-SEC <laughs> schools. Mm-hmm. Do you see this as a matchup to determine which Southern school is, in fact, the best? Yeah, Clemson really enjoys being told that, by the way. You should tell every Clemson fan you ever meet that they're secretly in the SEC. It, they, they love it. They think it's great. Do it. It's a great way to get punched in a tender part of your body. Um, I think this is a really interesting game in several instances. One being this, that Alabama really hasn't faced a spread power run game that's capable of moving the ball like Clemson will. I mean, that was the most shocking thing about Clemson versus Oklahoma, that Clemson was able to move ass on the defensive line like they did. They just pushed Oklahoma's defensive line out of the way. And if you watched, Oklahoma had played pretty well defensively down the stretch and for a while they did in that game they got overpowered at the point of attack and Wayne Goldman is kind of the centerpiece for that he just he's a very very hard runner and when people say like okay well what do you mean specifically by that I'm like his intensity does not wane over the course of a game if you watch Derrick Henry like Derrick Henry is another interesting case because Derrick Henry I don't want to say he was a system back, okay? Because he's obviously he's this giant six foot three, two hundred and forty pound, you know, like create a back that they have in the backfield. But he got, you know, 30, 40 carries. If you watch Gallman, Gallman's smaller than that, but Gallman runs with the exact same intensity every single down. And after a while, that's very hard to match, especially for large, easily winded people on the defensive line who really like three and outs, right? So that that to me, watching uh, Clemson's offensive line, which has been so much better than anyone anticipated, going against Alabama's defensive line. I also like Deshaun Watson because Deshaun Watson is able to do something that, again, I think very few people besides Chad Kelly were able to do in the SEC regular season, which is get Alabama's uh, corners off of their islands. They play man. They don't really, you know, they don't like to look in the backfield a whole lot if they don't have to. And fortunately, the way Alabama's played defensively, they haven't had to. They're going to have to because he will move. He will move the pocket. He will get loose and I don't mean to like put a, a, this on every single Alabama defensive back, but they are a very systematic, very disciplined defense, and that's good most of the time. It's bad when you get to the position where somebody's improving, right? And where somebody's improving, and you don't have players who are taught to play with a lot of instinct, and that's when you get Alabama's defense in a bad spot. That's when you get points. That to me is the thing that gives Clemson the most hope in this game. I would like to say that I enjoyed that analysis. It was very technical. I would just like to point out that at two times, you almost derided players for being products of a system, which would be an okay critique. Were the system not Alabama's system? That's a good system. It's it's a real good system. It's phenomenal. (laughs) I'm basically like, I'm basically like, you know, chipping pebbles off the pyramid here. Like, this is this is as when you when you're talking about and I think that's something that is great to point out here because you have to reach a little bit when you try to get around this formula. You have to do this. Remember the only game Alabama lost this year was in a game where you're like I I don't know. Look, you you turned the ball over like four times, five times. Jacob Coker was just starting and had like his worst game. Uh, Alabama's offensive game plan was trash. There was a touchdown, which was a freak of nature, just a complete accident that happened in that game. That's what you need to beat this team. Clemson, I don't think, needs quite as much because, honestly, this Clemson team is probably better disciplined and I think a little bit deeper than that old Miss team. 
but they still need some of that to happen. So where again, in order to beat Alabama, you have to stretch. Oh, that's all great. I'm really interested in all this technical analysis, but I view the championship game as a battle between conservative Christianity and soulless corporate bureaucracy, two systems that are clearly in place and the embodiment of their coaches. <laughs> this, is, this is a matchup of who's closer to Jesus. It's Dabo. I hate to tell you. It's, it's I mean, Alabama fans. It's, it's Dabo. Dabo knows Jesus, has his personal phone number. I'm not even joking. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he talks to our Lord and Savior every single day. My favorite thing on my Twitter account that popped up, somebody just had a picture of Dabo <laughs> on the beach in the Orange Bowl, and he's wearing, I think they were going parasailing or something. And so he has this, like, he's on the shore, and he's got this life jacket and a pair of shorts on, and he's looking out at the water. And somebody just sent me that picture with the caption, I'm going to bring that dolphin to Jesus. And like, <laughs> <laughs> and like Dabo looks serious enough where you're like, he might have been really thinking that. And you know what? All right. So da- Dabo Sweeney goes to the beach. Nick Saban has never been to a beach. So that would be the contrast that I think you're trying to make. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that Nick Saban plays golf once a week. That's it. Believe it or not, Nick Saban, even at his manic pace, plays golf once a week in Tuscaloosa with someone who has nothing to do with football whatsoever. So we started eating uh, ribs in hell at 3 a.m. We ended with Debo Sweeney uh, baptizing a dolphin at midfield mm-hmm. um, in Death Valley. Uh, I think I think we've completed the segment. Spencer Hall, editorial director of SB Nation, editor of Every Day Should Be Saturday. Thank you, sir. Listen, Debo's going to show that Gila monster Jesus out in Arizona. Watch him. <laughs> that again was Spencer Hall. Thank you, Spencer Hall. Uh, Our sponsor this week is Squarespace, which makes building a website portfolio or an online store incredibly easy and lets anyone feel like an awesome designer who is not terrible at building a website portfolio or online store. If you look through the collection of sites that have been created using Squarespace, you'll find a lot of impressive-looking stuff. The one that really caught my eye this morning was Egg Shop NYC, which is a restaurant in New York that has a beautiful picture. It's like a salad there's toast in there, salmon, hard-boiled eggs. I think I just really wanted eggs this morning. I was over ribs. Moving on to eggs as in a very breakfast modality. When you showcase your egg-based offerings on a super sleek and handsome site, then I'm going to be even hungrier. So thank you, Squarespace. And also, Squarespace, you owe me an egg sandwich. You know where to find me. Uh, sites built using Squarespace, whether egg-based or vegan, Look professionally designed regardless of skill level. There's no coding required. You can make the site over easy or maybe easily would be the way to say that in English if you're not trying to pun aggressively. Uh, Squarespace offers intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HANGUP to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. In the NFL, we generally toast the carcasses of fired head coaches on the day after the last regular season game, what's known as Black Monday. But this year, a bunch of teams were so excited to fire their coaches that they just couldn't wait for those Black Monday sales. The Dolphins and Titans dumped their uh, coaches a long time ago. The Browns and 49ers fired Mike Pettin and Jim Tomsula, respectively, on Sunday. Then there are the Eagles, who went 10-6 and and 10-6 and in Chip Kelly's first two seasons, but fired the man after starting out 6-9 and nine in year three. Kelly came from the University of Oregon with the reputation as an offensive genius. He installed a fast-paced no-huddle offense 
And he micromanaged his players' diets and sleep habits. They love that. Mm. Owner Jeff Lurie went all in on Kelly a year ago when he gave the coach control of all personnel decisions. But Kelly's moves, uh, which included getting rid of running back LaShawn McCoy, releasing offensive lineman Evan Mathis, and not re-signing receiver Jeremy Macklin, were, to be nice about it, kind of shitty. Uh, in dumping Kelly, Lurie said that there was risk and reward in giving the coach so much control and that the risk did not work out. Uh, Stefan, there is a lot going on here. The asshole NFL coach is, if not as old as New Year's Eve as a concept, it's like <laughs> right up there. And we're still not changing that paradigm either. But this particular brand of asshole coach, the combination mm -hmm. of control freakiness with bringing what would be considered like crazy new ideas to the league, that seemed like a combination where if things went badly, it wasn't going to last for very long. Right. I think in order to be a more modern NFL coach like, say, Pete Carroll, um, who has installed things like diet and sleep habit and training and changing the paradigm of how <laughs> NFL players do some of those things, you have to be liked by your players. You can't be – a distant – and he wasn't – it wasn't just the players apparently in Philadelphia. It was the building. It was the front office. It was – nobody seemed to like the shield. Kelly. It was – wait, the, the health center? I've been there. It's named after – The health center. <laughs> the cafeteria ladies hated fucking Chip Kelly. Everyone hated Chip Kelly. Um, I mean, it sounds like he alienated the majority of the, of, of the, of the Philadelphia Eagles organization. Um, apparently, Jeffrey Lurie, the owner, when he called in Chip Kelly – for his come to Jesus conversation after week 15, Lurie said he didn't intend to fire him until they sort of got into the conversation and they realized that Chip Kelly was unrelenting, wasn't listening to any of the criticism that Lurie was giving him and wasn't about to change at all. Well, how can you have any sympathy, Mike, for Jeff Lurie, the owner, who gives Kelly control of the entire franchise after Knowing him for two years, knowing his methods for two years, and then just completely pulls the plug, and this guy is like suddenly an asshole now. It, like exactly. after the team, after the team right. stops doing well, just the the facts. It we could get into the fine details and whether he was a Scrooge with a holiday party. Those are fun to report out and kind of interesting in terms of human dynamics. But the very basic facts of this, which are Chip Kelly is hired to have a massive overhaul, a massive overhaul that flies in the face in a lot of ways of not just the old way things are done, but what people recognize as best practices. A guy who evaluates great players as being irrelevant to his success, such is his genius. Now, the guy who empowers him to make as big a change as you could make with this organization, maybe even any organization, after two years decides that it was a mistake, that's on the owner. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of maniacs who would like to institute maniacal ideas. But if you're the <laughs> owner, you have to say, wait a minute, I like some of this, but not all of this. Or if I have to buy everything that you're selling, I'm going to buy nothing. This is very much on Lurie. Because Lurie could have said, I love what you did at Oregon. I love your concepts of uh, play design. I love your concepts of hurry up. But come on, LeSean McCoy, that's, that's called a good running back. Or come on, the quality of the actual quarterback matters. Or come on, don't cut all our good people. But he never said any of that. And then I guess he had to, he had to just uh, cut off the head because the rest of the body had festered. I think there are two human dynamic things going on here when it comes to ownership. 
One is that these guys abandon the principles that made them so successful in the first place when they become owners of professional sports teams. Um, so they forget that interpersonal relationships tend to be useful. And they forget that in managing a staff, it helps to have someone who's good at communicating with them because they fall in love with the idea of, oh, this guy is tough as nails. He's no bullshit. He's going to drill discipline and organization onto this team that is so desperate in need of it. I mean, look at what Lurie said at his press conference to talk about Chip Kelly's firing. He said this, we're looking for someone who interacts very well and communicates clearly with everybody he works with and comes in touch with. You've got to open your heart to players and everybody you want to achieve peak performance. I would call it a style of leadership that values information from all the resources provided, but at the same time values emotional intelligence. So he didn't figure any of that out before hiring Chip Kelly. He didn't realize that he was not someone that interacts very well and communicates clearly with staff and opens his heart to people and values emotional intelligence. He did a shitty job of vetting the candidate for the most important position in his team. So... I find the 49ers to be an interesting contrast here because the easy thing to say would be, and I think I already even said it in this segment, like they seemed to like this guy well enough when they were 10 and 6, but not when they were 6 and 9. Well, with the 49ers, they got rid of Jim Harbaugh when they were actually doing really well still, and everybody in the building hated him. All the players hated him. And he, what was reported out and what, what I believe is that he had this very hard-driving style and it got old and the players got sick of the message they're hearing. So then the 49ers bring in this Jim Tomsula guy who just, based on just his public presentation, perhaps this is unfair, but that guy seemed a little bit like a fool. And the, the, well, record, yeah, the droopy uh, mustache, the, that always hurts. Yeah. I droopy mean, mustache guy. Yeah. yeah. And so he, you know, the team has a bad record. Um, they're firing him. And now Chip Kelly is apparently a candidate to go to San Francisco. I also find the contrast with the Philadelphia 76ers to be interesting because this would be like them completely short-circuiting the quote-unquote process after a couple years of it not working. And Bill Belichick comes out and says, well, you know, I support Chip Kelly. Um, how could you get rid of a guy after just a couple years? It takes a while to, you know, get something, uh, you know, established. And he's, you know, I think speaking from the personal hurt of being let go by the Cleveland Browns. Worst thing never happened to Bill Belichick. But I guess the question is, if Lurie, you know, if we all agree that he screwed this up, but if he feels like, you know, at this point, he recognizes that he made a mistake, does it make sense for him to just dump this guy and move on or try to make it work with him, acknowledging that they have had success with the same dude as recently as last year. Well, there's another way to look at it, which is that there are a couple of indications, a couple of large, statistically unavoidable, empirically true things that will get a coach fired. And I would posit that playoffs, followed by missing the playoffs, followed by losing record, 90% of coaches in the NFL these days, if those are your first three seasons, get fired after that. Now, some coaches get fired beforehand, but basically you usually get two seasons. So that's a little bit of an exception in San Francisco. If you're going on a downward trajectory, if there's not some major 
reason why you don't get fired. You get fired after two seasons if you start losing in a row. Once the trajectory is downward and you've been out of the playoffs for two years, I mean, there's a pretty good formula, I think, that you could uh, calculate to tell you if the coach is going to be fired and the circumstance I just laid out will lead to a firing most of the time. And if you want to say it's because of a holiday party or it's because of personality or it's because of whatever, those are the things that we fill in just to justify or mentally justify to ourselves the fact that you're on a losing trajectory. I, I, I disagree a little bit, Mike, because I think when an intelligent owner, a, a well-balanced owner, finds a coach who combines the traits that lead to success, not every year in the NFL, because every smart owner knows that you will not win every year because of the way the league is structured and because of the vagaries of the sport, injuries, etc. Um, so I think that the owners that find someone they trust and they like and they build a relationship with are going to actually stick with them through multiple years of ups and downs. I mean, Denver, the situation that I was familiar with, Mike Shanahan was there for a very long time before all parties kind of agreed that it was time to go. Look at Baltimore, the other Harbaugh, who's also a control freaky kind of guy like his brother, had a kind of come to Jesus season this year when he recognized some of his shortcomings in terms of how he dealt with players and admitted them publicly and admitted them to his to his team. And those kinds of coaches tend to survive a six and ten season. No, 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 Chip no, no. Chip Kelly did no. not have enough to not survive a six and ten season. Wrong. I think Super Bowl winning coaches get a bunch of. They're, they're an exception. You asterisk. You win a Super Bowl. They'll stick with you for a long time. And Shanahan won a Super Bowl in his uh, fourth and fifth year. So that that allows him to stay. And Harbaugh won a Super Bowl. And Coughlin won Super Bowls. And that's why otherwise he'd definitely be out. But he won Super Bowls. And I think in uh, in New Orleans. Uh, Sean Payton won a Super Bowl, so he's going to be the one to decide if he stays or goes. So that that's the well, factor. We can, oh, but, well, no, which is but with the chicken and egg situation. I mean, do you win a Super Bowl because or in spite of the fact that you're a dick? Well, no, I'm talking we about what a bunch determines of ca- if a we, coach goes. Sure, sure, sure. I understand. Tr- uh, losing trajectory, making the playoffs, then missing the playoffs twice, and getting worse seasons will always mean you go unless you've done something like win a Super Bowl or are Joe Gibbs or something like that. Wait, who by the way won a Super Bowl? No, we could come up with counterexamples. The Jaguars just extended Gus Bradley, who's been terrible for four straight years. Um, and, you know, the Colts have had Chuck Pagano for four years and have been great. And they're obviously mitigating circumstances. And Jeff Fisher was in Tennessee for a long, long yeah, I know, time. Jeff the longest tenured coach in the NFL. Jeff but Fisher, I'm charmed. <laughs> what I was going to say about Chuck Pagano is what's the case there is that he has conflict with the owner in the front office. You have to be, like, very emotionally intelligent as a coach to be able to navigate a, you know, poor season. Um, and I think the other kind of counterargument to what you're saying, Mike, is that if you factor in owner gives coach control of the entire organization, you would not think like six and nine record means com- fire him and completely dismantle what you have just assembled. Yes. But that calls in the question, the keys to the kingdom decision, as opposed to that's the bad decision. That's always that. a bad decision. I mean, historically, that has not been a good decision by owners. Um, that's what led to Shanahan leaving Denver, and it's and it's affected other coaches too. All right, on Sunday in Denver. Speaking of Denver, the Broncos' uh, backup quarterback Peyton Manning came off the bench to lead his team to a twenty-seven twenty win over the Chargers. 
and lock up the number one seed in the AFC playoffs. I don't know about you guys. I was not anticipating that this was a possibility that Peyton Manning would play in this game. I think a lot of people thought he might never play again. He's 39. He's had these issues with his foot. He's missed six games due to various injuries, primarily the torn plantar fascia. But now the Broncos have the number one seed in the AFC. They have a bye before their first game. It'd be very surprising if Manning uh, didn't start that game. But that's not really the big news about Peyton Manning. While he was convalescing, Al Jazeera claimed in a documentary called The Dark Side, colon, <laughs> Secrets of the Sports Dopers. It's so funny. The, the word Al Jazeera in that sentence is the funniest thing. <laughs> Al Shabab later cited it in an angry video. <laughs> uh, they alleged that he had used human growth hormone while recovering from a previous injury. The neck, uh, screwed up neck situation required four surgeries in 2010 and 2011. Charlie Sly, the pharmacist who has since recanted his claims, was caught on a hidden camera saying that the Geyer Institute, an anti-aging clinic where Manning has admitted he received treatment, shipped HGH to Florida under Manning's wife Ashley's name. Manning denies those allegations. Let's listen to that vehement denial. Have you ever used HGH or any performance enhancing drug? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And what, what hurts me the most about this is that whoever this guy is, this slapstick, trying to insinuate that in 2011 when I, you know, more or less had a broken neck. I don't know, four neck surgeries, you know, broken neck. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a difference in there, but I had a bad neck. And, uh, I busted my butt, you know, to get healthy. Uh, put in a lot of hard work. I saw a lot of doctors. I went to the Geyer Clinic. He had a hyperbaric chamber that our coach, trainers, and doctors thought might be good for me. They went with me and uh, um, thought it might help. Don't know if it helped. Uh, it didn't hurt. Time ended up being probably my best medicine, along with a lot of hard work. And that uh, it, it really uh, it stings me, whoever this guy is, insinuating that I cut corners. I broke NFL rules in order to get healthy. It's a joke. It's a freaking joke. I think he wanted to say slap dick, not slapstick. But move on. Um, Mike, so a bunch of questions about this. Do you think he meant to say slap dick or slapstick? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. part two, <laughs> the conversation around this is kind of branched off into a million different directions. Do you believe that Peyton Manning took HGH. Um, and if you do believe it, do you care? HGH was never proved. Everyone's done that joke, right? But it doesn't get old. Um, it doesn't, I don't know. I have no basis to adjudicate that claim. But for the fact that the Doha-based Al Jazeera <laughs> doesn't maybe have the greatest uh, track record in this specific story. Story. It was recanted. It wasn't recanted. The guy they quoted didn't work there. The guy they quoted knew. And then let's talk about the various branch-offs. Branch-off number one, what I saw on my television set, was thrilling. I was thrilled that Peyton Manning came back. And with only his guile, his bariatric-esque guile, could he command, commandeer the Broncos' offense down the field thus creating a quarterback controversy in two weeks and but earning a first-round bye. And then there's the question of, you know, HGH, I know it's uh, not allowed to be used in this way, and yet, don't we want our players healing up and 
doesn't every, you know, short eight-year-old kid in most upper-middle-class towns take HGH? The answer is yeah, it's, it's uh, heavily prescribed. And isn't it weird that we could do all these things that are medically questionable, especially pre... Peyton Manning played most of his career before those concussion protocols, so I'm sure he's gone back into games with concussions or, you know, we'll quickly set your leg on the sideline or we'll do all these things, but he can't actually take something that might help him heal quicker. I know HGH has never actually been proven to help healing in the kind of way that he did heal, but the placebo effect is real. doesn't seem to hurt you so much that a 10-year-old kid can't take it. I'm not in favor of off-prescription uses for these kind of uh, things, but it just doesn't, it doesn't actually get me on a you, you dirty cheater level. It gets me more on a you can't prove this claim and seems like we're unfairly heaping some well, I don't know if we, but Al Jazeera unfairly heaps some accusations they couldn't back up as much as a news organization should. I'm not quite in agreement with you on the Al Jazeera. I'm not sure why you're slagging Al Jazeera as a news organization. The documentary was pretty <laughs> credible. They enlisted a 37-year-old English track athlete, high-level competitor. He wanted to expose the drug use at the high levels of the sports. He carried a hidden camera in his backpack. He visited doctors in the Bahamas, naturopaths, Canada. He went all over the place and found potential suppliers of legal and illegal performance-aiding drugs. Um, And these people spoke candidly because they didn't know they were being videotaped about what they could do for him. And not only that, but they received drugs from these people. Um, So the guy that later, quote-unquote, recanted by saying I was just trying to brag and I was name-dropping, sure didn't seem to be bragging and name-dropping when he was talking off the cuff trying to um, enlist this English athlete as one of his users. What else would he have been doing? I watched the documentary, and the British hurdler was just asking him for names of people, and he was just listing names of famous athletes that he had dealt with. There's no like reason medically for him to list like what superstar athlete he was just name dropping. I mean, it well, doesn't mean that he was, li- doesn't doesn't mean he was, he was lying. lying. He was trying to sell this guy. Hey, I've worked with other athletes. What was he going to just pull names out of a hat? And the answer to why I slag it off is because the use of a non-professional journalist in an undercover sting operation is poor journalism, and good journalistic organizations don't do it, Al Jazeera. Except that Al Jazeera did background reporting, and they've said very clearly that they had other sources that have corroborated some of the claims made by these people. And in the documentary, they say, we checked to see if this guy Sly worked at this, this institute in Indianapolis. They did other reporting. So I think it's easy to trash the documentary because it's Al Jazeera. Um, or at least the name sounds funny, and we don't associate it with. It has nothing to do with the name sounding funny. For sure, it does. That's how you started the conversation. I make Mike. jokes about names that are funny. It has to do with this is a crap way to do an investigation. It's how tabloid organizations in Britain and other places do investigations, not how American broadcast journalism does it. And Al Jazeera doesn't adhere to the norms of American broadcast journalism. And Charlie Sly reports are didn't work there uh, when Peyton Manning's wife allegedly got the shit 
midshipman, and Charlie Sly seemed to just be trying to impress this British hurdler on tape. I'm just saying that I can't trust Al Jazeera is not the name I trust like something like CNN or a 60 Minutes report. I'm not gullible and I wouldn't take everything represented by NPR, the BBC, or CBS's gospel. But yeah, I have. There is a bigger hurdle because it's Al Jazeera and it doesn't matter what the name is. It matters what their, uh, what, what their history is in terms of truthfulness on a lot of things. Well, I think that if you claim to know either way or to have strong beliefs either way about Peyton Manning doing, you know, taking HGH or not, then you're just wrong. Like, there's nothing in the reporting so far, what we know so far, that I think can get you to like 98% Mm -hmm. certainty either way. But I kind of agree with Mike that I thought the documentary was incredibly disingenuous. You have this hurdler on camera at the very end wrapping things up by saying, I wanted to do this so we could get past the whole thing of naming people and get into like what this really what sports doping really means. The entire point of this documentary was to name people. There was no other reason the documentary for this did have a baseball player admitting on undercover on in this video that he took drugs. But don't you think it was disingenuous for him to sure. come on at the end and say that it wasn't about Totally. And I, I agree with names. Mike about the way English journalism functions and the 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 sort of the the serious British narration in this was uh, was off-putting. But can we just so talk journalism other... for a second though, Stefan? I don't know if you know this, but there are these massive suits against Al Jazeera for leaning on the reporters especially with uh, Israel News. And I'm talking about Al Jazeera America where this where this aired. Al Jazeera is operating in the Middle East is, you know, it's not as bad as Hezbollah TV, but it's bad. And when people I know were going to work for them, I said, why would you do that? They have credibility problems. Nothing to do with the name. Has to do with the history. All right. Credibility problems with this guy, Charlie Sly, as well. I think that it's funny that people are like, oh, this guy was just an intern. And, you know, there is some question about whether he worked there. The reporter, I believe the reporter says, that she has on tape, the Geyer Institute saying he did work there in 2011. But it's just funny that people would attack this guy's credibility as if anyone operating in this world would have credibility. It's like Tony Bosch, oh, that that guy is like not credible. Well, you know, people who are like dispensing performance-enhancing drugs to athletes off the books are not going to be credible people. They're going to be shady people. And so the fact that he seems shady might actually make it seem like more likely that that what he is saying is true. But I think the point that you make, Mike, that I really agree with, though, is that there's a so what element here, too. The only reason Peyton Manning was able to play on Sunday night was probably because he was shot up with a lot of cortisone over the last six weeks. Plantar fasciitis is unbelievably painful. You cannot walk in the morning when you get out of bed, when you have plantar fasciitis. I've had cortisone shots for plantar fasciitis. I didn't have to go play football. And he had torn this. Holy shit, that is painful. I mean, we we do live in a, a world of denial when it comes to what it takes for NFL players to actually get on the field on Sunday. You know, we know about Toradol and we know about cortisone and we know what these athletes are shot up with and what they take um, in order to be able to play. So... You know, I, there is an argument to be made is so what? I mean, Tommy Craggs actually during our one of our NFL roundtables for Slate back in 2011 
wrote, what if HGH could cure Peyton Manning? What happens if we find out this stuff works? How does anyone make the moral case against extending the career of the best quarterback in NFL history? We want to believe Peyton Manning that all you need to do is work hard to come back from multiple neck surgeries and play the most brutal sport on the planet by doing only things like lifting weights and going to yoga and sitting in a hyperbaric chamber. I'm not sure that we should believe that. Well, what do you think, uh, Mike, of the idea that our response to this is colored by Peyton Manning's reputation, his relationship with the Chris Mortensons and Peter Kings of the world, because we have to refract everything through Patriots world. Mm -hmm. The obvious question is, like, how would we be thinking about this if it was Tom Brady or or heaven for fend, whoever Tom Brady's backup is, whose name (laughs) I can't remember right now. Garofalo? Garofalo? Um, yeah, it's, Jean, it's Jeannie Garofalo. It's Jean, yeah, it's uh, Janine Garofalo. Yeah, I love during the truth about cats and gronks. Um, <laughs> well, right. Although you know, so so uh, performance enhancing, or in this case, probably injury rehabbing drugs are alleged. You could immediately go to the analogies to the hated Bonds, or what if it were Brady, or you could say, what if it was Sean Merriman accused of this? I mean, for the most part in football, except for the quarterbacks who occupy a different place in our minds, we don't care what the Warriors do or put into their body. Mm -hmm. We never hold it against them when they have a performance-enhancing drug um, um, suspension, although sometimes it is hard to figure out if they're suspended for marijuana or if they're suspended for performance enhancers, though it's usually known. And so yeah, I and, think, and I there's think another that's a good an- point about the quarterback exception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's another analogy to Adderall, which a lot of players take. And it's also the it's a pretty good analogy, I think, because a lot of kids take it, too. And it probably won't kill you. But that probably or maybe people who take it think it does help them. I don't know. We, I don't think we're really actually worked up about Peyton Manning unless we're a huge Broncos or Peyton Manning fan. Then we're irrationally a defender or we're a huge hater. Then we ana- irrationally hated, or then we have to make an analogy to a thing we actually have real feelings about. I don't think most people really are like, I can't believe that guy worked his way back from spinal fusion in a way that's illegal, except in Germany. (laughs) Well, he did. You know, we talk about the kind of treatments that even our iconic quarterbacks receive. I think after his spinal fusion surgery, there were reports that Peyton Manning did fly to Europe and have stem cell treatments to try to help with his recovery. One final thought: the coda of the Dirty Game documentary, or what was it? What was it called? The Dark Side. The Dark Side. Because that's what the athletes call it. Dark Side, Dirty Game. The, all these documentaries are have one of two titles. Um, they had Tim Montgomery, who is former world record holder in the hundred meters. He says it's not worth what you got to live with the rest of your life by doing it dirty, and that's again what was so disingenuous about this documentary. It's just so incurious about whether HGH actually does anything. And it actually creates, whether it's the NFL putting it on a ban list, whether it's a documentary putting HGH in the same category as anabolic steroids, just makes it seem more alluring when, in fact, we don't know. And Mark Cuban wants to study this. You know, credit him for actually caring what this drug does And that's why this documentary just left me feeling so annoyed. All it cared, it came in just touting what a super in-depth, important investigation it was. And all it cared about was dropping Peyton Manning's name. Yes. 
But what it also showed was how sleazy this world is and how interconnected the athlete and the coach and the participants and these shady characters are, how prevalent this actually is. And in that, I thought it was, it was, uh, it was valuable. All right, let's do afterballs. And due to the uh, marketing of the college football playoff on uh, General Hospital, I naturally went down the rabbit hole of the list of characters on General Hospital Wikipedia page. Um, here are my favorites. There is Cook, the unnamed Cook, deceased, worked for the Quartermains as their cook for many years, hated when anyone else was in her kitchen, and thus people at the house were afraid of her. She quit a few times but always came back. Cook was the first fatality in September 2012 when Jerry Jacks released a deadly pathogen into the Port Charles water supply. Then immediately after, Cook 2 replaced the deceased Cook. <laughs> Mike, what is your Cook 2? All right. I will take you inside the conversation, the minds, the texts of Jets fans as the game went down. Our cast of characters are Mike. I only rarely chime in to say something smartass. Brett. Brett is the stereotypical live by the Jets, die by the Jets. Same old Jets. That's the kind of thing he'd say. I knew they'd break my heart. That's the kind of thing he'd say. They should have drafted this guy. Brett's usually right about that. That's the kind of thing he'd say. Paul, a little more cerebral, watches a lot of the NFL network uh, speaks sometimes in scouting jargon, has moved to Alabama, we think, just to be close to the alma mater of Richard Todd, Joe Namath, and Marty Lyons. So the conversation begins an hour before the game as Brett texts to the group, Powell out, that's Bilal Powell, WTF, that means what the fuck, that's huge. He's been the offensive MVP the last three games. Paul explains he missed practice a lot this week. Paul also goes on to say, we're going to have to get by with a healthy offensive line. Ivory, a solid receiving quarterback who's playing well. He also says to Brett, let's turn that frown upside down. This is going to be a huge day. So you see how we've cast our play. Paul is optimistic. Brett is not. The next text comes 20 minutes into the game as Brett notes to the group, not a game goes by without the special teams fucking up. Jets fans should be allowed to stone the special teams coach. Is Ivory hurt? My frown is upside down, Paul. Ugly, pathetic football. Penalties, drop passes, poor tackling and punting. Help me see the light. To which Paul says, go Browns. Brett says, don't think so, stupid rookie. Then I text the nine things that have to go right for the Colts to make the playoffs. They don't care about that. Brett says, not our day, guys. That is at 2.01. Remember, this is a one o'clock game. I note that Fitzpatrick, <laughs> Fitzpatrick lacks zip. Brett says, lack of power speed is huge here, thus confirming his theory. Team looks slow. He also says, and Rex Ryan does not have one penalty. That was at 2.05. Also at 2.05, I note, and there it is because they just got a uh, penalty. But it was one of these weird ones where a guy left the field to play and came back in with, meh, who cares? The Jets score. Paul says this is a turning point. They score their first touchdown. Brett gets on board a little bit. Here we go. Frown slowly turning. A couple emojis, one showing a somewhat frowning face, and the next one showing a somewhat less frowning face are presented to the group. Brett also notes that the Browns are driving. We need a turnover here. One penalty on Bills all game. Amazing for a Rex Ryan team. I note about Bills wide receiver Greg Salas. I say, Salas is a palindrome. Thought I'd point that out. Brett, Brett says defense. <laughs> 
defense looks pedestrian. Fucking pace. He plays old and is getting spun around every fucking play. I've never seen a team in a must-win game come out with their heads in their ass. I said, Brett, in this league, every game is a must-win, and every ass has a head in it. Brett says, we could have used the timeout. It cost us 30 seconds. We never used the timeout. Second half begins. I note that Buffalo seems indiscriminate with that horn they're using. Brett says, glad we have an offense built around stone hands. Brett says, what happened to Rivas Island? Which is true. He did not play well. Paul says, Jets are losing this game at the line of scrimmage. Brett says, in my heart as well. Visions of Geno Smith here is offered by someone. Don't know what that means. Oh, I think they actually showed a picture of Geno Smith. (laughs) How about a run here and then Ivory? No! Second and 12, they call a run. Fuck you, Chan Galley. So for a while, we don't say anything. We're watching the last drive in the two minutes. Ryan Fitzpatrick throws an interception in the end zone. And then as time is running out, I offer this. If Jets force a three and out, they might punt with 55 seconds left. After two minutes... It turns out they punt with exactly 55 seconds left. Wow, I nailed it. Exactly, exclamation. For some reason, the guys do not congratulate me on my perspicacity. And then the recriminations begin. Brett, I think unwisely, begins watching the post-game show on the local cable network. That's (laughs) never good for your soul. The guys start talking about if they want Fitz's coach. They do like Fitzpatrick. They also say the post-game analysts are killing the Jets. See, we know who the audience is for this. Paul says, listen. Jets finish 10-6, and six, a huge improvement. Who gets credit for making Fitzpatrick a good starter? Look at the stats and rankings. Brett says, 10-6, and six, old line, old DBs, older WRs, and old QB. Plus, we should lose one for Fitzpatrick, right? And we lost Wilkerson. Paul says, this was a good team. It's going to be changed significantly next year. Brett says, Paul, we had one of the easiest schedules ever. Jesus. Paul said, they have cap issues as is. Shame we couldn't get this team into the playoffs. Brett says, the analysts could not understand how Ivory was not in the game when we were in the red zone. I said, but guys, I really nailed that 55 seconds left to punt thing. Brett says, Jets had everything to play for. Paul notes that we need to address the left tackle situation. They start going over everyone on the team who needs to be replaced. Yes, they agree Cromartie needs to go. Yes, they agree DeBrickishaw needs to go. But they like Fitzpatrick and they like the wide receivers. I once again say, I really nailed that punt. They're totally ignoring me. And the conversation ends with saying, at least we're not Eagles fans. Stefan, what is your cook to? I was going to go with Luke and Laura, who were the general hospital characters from my High school general hospital watching days. Uh, Unlike Luke and Laura, but like most American sports fans, I did not watch any of the college football playoffs, but I did listen to some of the Clemson-Oklahoma game on ESPN radio while driving back to Washington from New York. It was uh, Bill Rosinski on the play-by-play, former New York Jets 1987 scab quarterback David Norrie with the color, and Joe Shad patrolling the sideline. And you know what? They sucked. I mean, they sucked in the banal way that most football commentators suck. The third quarter had this awesome stretch of ridiculous talking. It started when Oklahoma running back Samaji Pirine basically had a piano fall on his left foot in the form of Clemson defensive tackle DJ Reader. Rosinski described how Pirine couldn't get up, couldn't put weight on his foot. 
and had to be helped to the sidelines by trainers. That was all fine. But then a few plays later, the Sooners' other starting running back, Joe Mixon, hit his head on the turf trying to make a block. Mixon was adjudged either by Rosinski or Nori to have gotten his bell rung. And I know I shouldn't be surprised that moron radio guys are still ringing bells, but I am. All right, so one running back is possibly concussed. The other can't walk. Let's go down to Joe Shad on the Sooners' sideline for an update. Trainers gave Pirine a couple of pain pills and are taping his ankle. That's a paraphrase, but not the pain pills part. A couple of pain pills. What fucking magic pain pills were they dispensing that would give Pirine the ability to walk after not being able to walk at all and having to be carried off the field? Advil? Was it Percocet? Vicodin? Dilaudid? Morphine? A couple of fucking pain pills. Good sideline reporting, Joe Shad. By the way, you might want to have somebody clean up your Wikipedia page, which mocks you for misreporting that Les Miles would be replaced at LSU. I'm going to devote the rest of this afterball to a smaller pinging of my baritone play-by-play radio guy cliche detector. It went off when Rosinski told us that one of the teams was moving left to right to start the second half. Now, I understand the principle of telling the audience which way a team is moving. The phrase is what's known as a spatial pattern. Mm. It's designed to help a listener visualize the game. It's also transparently dumb. A team is, of course, only moving from left to right or right to left from the vantage of the announcer. So the announcer, the announcer might more honestly say, you know, the Wallabies are moving from my left to my right or more neutrally, if less visually, the platypi are moving east to west or north to south. Left to right is meaningless to the listener unless the listener is always sitting behind the mic, too. Before it morphed into a radio tick, the directional description of for field position in games like football, basketball, and hockey actually may have started as a tongue-in-cheek description, and that's because the modern phrase is truncated from the original moving left to right on your radio dial. There's an absolute sense of irony, or at least whimsy there, because the team was not literally moving across the radio dial, and the announcers knew that. The announcer was being clever or funny, winking at the audience, staring at a box, imagining what was happening on the field. Today's left to right is a dumbass, unironic, I'm a radio man and this is something radio men say line. So who started left to right? It's hard to be sure. Some sources credit the beloved University of Kentucky basketball and football play-by-play man K. Wood Ledford, who called Wildcats games from 1953 to 1992. Chick Hearn, who did the Lakers play-by-play from 57 to 2002, also is named as an inventor of left to right. But I don't think it was either of them. According to his biography, pioneering sports broadcaster Ted Husing, whose nickname was The Master, said this during a 1953 game. Duke moving left to right across your radio dial, fourth down at the Army 42-yard line. Army leads by a single point. Husing called Army games starting in 1947, so he certainly predates Hearn or Ledford with the call. But there might be an even earlier source, the great Mel Allen. In his book, How About That? The Life of Mel Allen, Stephen Borelli writes, quote, Army will defend the goal to your right as you look at the radio dial, Mel would say, if he was calling a college football game. That sounds like a made-up quotation, not a transcript, but Borelli uses it as a signature Allen phrasing, and Allen did start calling Alabama and Auburn football games in 1935 while he was a law student at Alabama. So unless I hear otherwise, let's credit slash blame the voice, Mel Allen, for the radio dial team moving direction. Well, one reason they maybe don't say left to right on your radio dial is I don't think radio dials exist anymore. Depends on how old your stereo is, mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. it? The old uh, Philco. I'm going to move left to right or right to left or just straight across the table to Josh. What's your cook to? 
I watched uh, Magic Mike XXL over the holidays, as one does when one's looking through the on-demand movies, and Magic Mike XXL cries out to you in the way that only Magic Mike XXL can. This is a movie that delivers exactly what you expect, with the exception that I was not expecting there to be a rather long sequence in which the single-season NFL sack leader strips down, oils himself up, and gyrates lasciviously. So I got to wondering... When Michael Strahan performs as a stripper, does Brett Favre slip underneath him so Strahan can set an all-time stripping record? Number two, (laughs) is Michael Strahan an innovator as a football player slash stripper? And the answer to that question is no, he is not. Maurice Douglas played 11 years in the NFL with the Bears and the Giants in the 80s and 90s. In the offseason, he indeed moonlighted as a stripper or as every article I found insisted on phrasing it, he was a male stripper, which seems kind of redundant. Uh, He was a male stripper, not a female stripper, to make things clear. Mm -hmm. So here are the top 14, 14 facts about Maurice Douglas, stripper and NFL special teamer, as culled from articles in the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, AP, and elsewhere. Number one. Josh is going to cross-post this on Mashable later. (laughs) According to the Chicago Tribune, Douglas would make between $500 and $800 working three nights a week. You meet a lot of people stripping. I never tell them I play football, though. I just tell them I'm a regular guy, like the man on the street. If you tell the ladies you're a football player, then they'll be interested in just that. I'm much more than just a football player. (laughs) Number two, he got into it as a freshman in college. He was on Christmas break. He had a cousin who did it, asked me if I wanted to make some extra money. He did. He had a nice time. Then he he says, I really enjoy stripping. It's not just the attraction you get from the ladies. It's more the money. Number three, Bears defensive coordinator Vince Tobin was asked if he found Douglas unusual. This might be my favorite of the 14 Maurice Douglas stripper facts. And yet you listed it third. Vince Tobin says, do you find Douglas unusual? He goes... Your unusual thing usually doesn't come out until you're pretty sure you have a spot on the football team. Right now, he doesn't want to be too unusual, but we have a lot of unusual guys on this team. He has a legitimate chance to be one of them. <laughs> he's in the, he's in the that, unusual conversation. I love the ambiguity there. He has a chance to be one of the unusual guys? Yes. Or a member of the team? Yes. Love it. Number four, he has used Apollo and Casanova as stage names, but prefers Space Cowboy. Number five... Maurice Douglas, golden, heart-shaped earring, hair permed, fingernails polished. He walks in a pair of fringed deerskin boots. He wears earrings. Oh, I already said that. Has three holes in his left lobe, one hole in his right. Douglas explains, I like to stand out at my appearance in my clothes by wearing the earrings and stuff. Number six, some Maurice Douglas stripping highlights. Did a private strip at a woman's birthday party during the player strike, 1987. Mm-hmm. He also said, they're all ages. There was a 70-year-old woman there one night having a birthday party. Doesn't discriminate. Number seven, Douglas says, they're both forms of entertainment, but football is a group thing. When you dance, it's just you by yourself. You have to do the best you can against this audience to make these people want to give you their money. Number eight, another Maurice Douglas stripping words to live by. My girlfriend, she likes for me to dance, but she wants to come down to the show. She hates for me to kiss the ladies when I'm out there dancing. But that's just part of getting the money. You've got to tease him a little bit, Stefan. Number nine, T.J. Simer's column on the Bears notes that Maurice Douglas, former male stripper, used to keep a pet cougar in his home. <laughs> Number 10. Is that legal? 
<laughs> Number 10. I think it refers on. to a woman over 40. I think that's the reference. <laughs> In March of 1989, Maurice Douglas testified against two sports agents in district court. He claimed that uh, one of the agents threatened to – that someone would break his legs if he attempted to break his contract with the agent. The agents were convicted of five counts of racketeering oh. and fraud. Number 11, Maurice Douglas, 1989, suspended four games for testing positive for steroids. By the way – Were they performance enhancing? If it was, it was, if it was an over-40 woman and not an actual cougar, that would have been a very early use of cougar, 1980s. Mm-hmm. Could have would been have the been. first. Talk to Marion Webster. That cougar that. would have been a cup back then. <laughs> uh, number 12, we're getting, we're getting to the home stretch here. Uh, in 1996, Mike Freeman, then writing for the New York Times, noted that Maurice Douglas is a former male stripper who says he used to smoke marijuana on a regular basis and by his own admission slept with a different woman almost every day. Look out, Maurice Douglas's girlfriend. He's not just kissing the ladies to get their money. No. But now, several years later, he is at peace with himself and free of self-destructive tendencies, something he attributes to becoming a Christian. He says he's been celibate for almost two years, and in the offseason, he did missionary work in Zimbabwe. Did he continue to strip? Neither his Bible nor his earrings is ever far from his side. Number 13, Douglas resurfaces in 2008 as a football coach at his high school, his alma mater, Ohio's Trotwood Madison, suspended by the Ohio Athletic Association for recruiting players. An article uh, notes that he wears sports coats with rhinestones. A year later, suspended again for four games for criticizing game officials, he was forced to write a letter of apology, apology to the officials. Number 14, and finally, I found this on a high school football message board, some trash talk. Your coach was a male stripper. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcast. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Sports Illustrated is the most trusted name in sports journalism, and now with the SI Podcast Network, you can take us with you wherever you go. From sports media to the NFL to fantasy football to the NBA, no one has you covered in the podcasting space like Sports Illustrated. See the entire lineup and learn more at SI.com slash podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.